0: Good morning, church. It's good to see each week, whether it's the first service or the second, people that I haven't seen in a while, at least here in worship. And it blesses me every single time. It's good to be here, good to be with you. And I know there's some that uh, still need to watch on live stream, and it's good to have you with us as well. And uh, we're looking at uh, uh, Daniel chapter 2. We'll be looking at that in a moment. It was the morning of Valentine's Day. The wife woke up, turned to her husband and said, honey, I just dreamed that you gave me a beautiful and expensive diamond necklace for Valentine's Day. And I have had that dream of you giving me that beautiful and expensive diamond necklace. I've had that dream for the last three nights. What do you think that dream means? You'll find out tonight, the husband replied. And she was really looking forward to that night. And the husband came home with a a small package, a beautifully wrapped gift. And she opened that gift with great anticipation, reached in. She pulled out a book. It was entitled, The Meaning of Dreams. The Meaning of Dreams. Now, I might not be the brightest bulb in the bunch, but I'm quite sure that wasn't the gift the wife was looking for. The Meaning of Dreams you ever wonder about a meaning of a dream? Well, around 603 BC, there was a king who would have been thrilled to receive that book, Meaning of Dreams. And that brings us to the book of Daniel. And so turn there with me, if you're not, to the second chapter of Daniel, the passage that was just read. We'll go a little beyond that this morning. But in Daniel chapter 2, Now, if you haven't been with us, as of two weeks ago, we began a new sermon series entitled Being a Bright Spot in the Dark Worlds. And I chose that theme because like the times we're living in, Daniel as a young man, perhaps as young as the age of 14, he grew up during some very dark days for the people of God. The two two southern tribes, uh, referred to as Judah, were carried off into captivity into exile by the superpower Babylon. The king that led that captivity, that led that siege, was Nebuchadnezzar. This morning, we see that the most powerful man in the world at that time came face to face with his weakness. He had a dream, an impossible dream, to interpret, and it led to everyone else's nightmare. And what we have seen these last two weeks in chapter 1 of Daniel is really a preparatory for what we now see beginning in chapter 2. You recall that Daniel and his three friends were part of a, a three-year training program. The key verse to everything else that happens in this book, I believe, is found in chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8, I think this is the key verse for this book, where it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. You see, Daniel was going to cooperate with the schooling and attend his literature and language classes. Daniel was going to cooperate, would not put up a stink over the name change. But he would politely, though with determination, say No to participating in eating of any food or drinking of any wine that was first offered to the Babylonian false gods. His loyalty to his God would not be compromised. And I believe that that one decision was made without Daniel really knowing what was going to come of it. He did not know. It was a step of faith that resulted in God's blessing on him and his three friends. That one decision would be used by God to multiply his influence. Now as we move into chapter 2, we begin to see how Daniel is that bright spot in the dark worlds. And by the time we come to the end of chapter 2 next Sunday, Daniel is given the opportunity to showcase the power of God And so as we move from chapter 1 to chapter 2, the mood in the king's palace changes drastically. Chapter 1 ends on a good note. Chapter 2 plays the blues. Chapter 1, everyone seems safe and sound. Chapter 2, everyone's sense of security is threatened. It goes from the king being delighted to the king being disturbed. And as we're going to see this morning in Daniel chapter 2, one person's dream becomes everyone else's nightmare. All right, first heading this morning is sleepless in Babylon. And if you don't like that, uh, t- uh, that uh, heading, uh, I got it from someone else. You can, you can blame them. Sleepless in Babylon, chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along with me, chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Now, it tells us it takes place during the king's second year of his reign. Now, often, uh, the year of a king's ascension isn't counted as year one, often. And so, this is probably around his third year uh, as king, technically and officially, which likely meant that it was towards the end of the three-year training program for Daniel and his three friends. They haven't quite graduated from it yet. They're probably still at the tail end of it. That's the setting for this. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. He had this incredible uh, building program. He built this great empire. He became rich and famous and and he even was uh, somewhat popular. He conquered all his enemies. He was in control. Hang on to that because we'll be coming back to that in a moment. But as Shakespeare put it, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. That's the life of a king. And so King Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. It's plural. He had dreams. It appears uh, that these dreams uh, that were keeping him up at night had become some kind of pattern. It was no other than just one night. It it seems like it was several nights. And unless I miss my guess, these dreams are likely God-induced but the passage doesn't tell us. But we do know the king has insomnia, he has insomnia. And when your mind is filled with the disturbing dreams, who are you gonna call? Not Ghostbusters, but his dream team, look at verse two. Verse two, so the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. We're told that his dream team was made up of magicians, which may be referring to fortune tellers, But the word actually suggests scholars of some sort. They were the enchanters that were part of this dream team, were into spiritism, and they were in communicating with the dead. Also called in were the third group here, the sorcerers. Literally, that word means the act of cutting. It may suggest that they worked with pharmaceutical ingredients. Matter of fact, later on, it's where we get our word pharmaceuticals from sorcerer. But some do believe that they practice witchcraft, so so that's very likely. But the fourth group called in to explain the meaning of his dream were the Chaldeans. The NIV translates it astrologers. I believe it's better to see these men as Chaldeans, as high government officials rather than astrologers. They played a a prominent role among the dream team and became the spokesmen uh, for the group, as we're going to see in a moment. The point is... Even this powerful king realizes he needed outside help, outside revelation. And he says to this brain trust in verse 3, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Now the king now speaks of one dream singular, one dream in particular that troubles him. Now troubles or troubled is really an understatement. The word trouble means a deep disturbance. What was so disturbing about this king's dream? Well, go down with me to verse 29 of of Daniel chapter 2. Verse 29, and we're going to look at this more next week. But verse 29 of of Daniel uh, Daniel 2, it tells us a little about what's going on in the king's brain. This is Daniel talking to the king about this troubling dream and he says this, verse 29, as you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. That's one reason I think these dreams are God-induced. Now, as we'll see next week, Daniel's gonna go on to explain that in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees this giant statue, that that, that statue's crushed. Now, The king knew this this could not be good. So lying in his bed one night, or perhaps for several nights, King Nebuchadnezzar is wondering, what next? What next for me? What next for my empire? I mean, this verse really goes on to let us in a bit on the king's state of mind. He's looking for the answer to the penetrating question, what next? Now, King Nebuchadnezzar had the Alexander Syndrome. Remember Alexander the Great? He conquered um, the better part of his world by the age of 30. Inheriting his father's uh, military genius and his mother's high ambitions, the Greek emperor Alexander the Great, he forged a new world order. And history tells us that when Alexander the Great realized there were no more worlds to conquer, he wept. He wept, the age of 30. You see, After your ambitions and dreams are achieved, what's next? When you reach that goal that you have set for yourself, what's next? Will whatever it is that you're chasing cause you to weep when you finally grab it, for it did not fulfill the deeper satisfaction within? There's an old wise man who was talking to this young ambitious man. And the old wise man goes up to this young ambitious man and he asks him, what do you plan on doing? Well, the young ambitious man says, well, I'm gonna to go to college, I'm gonna graduate and I'm gonna get a degree. And then, the older wise man asks, well, and then I'm going to set up a business. And then, the wise man asks again, well, then I'm gonna make my fortune and then, Well, then I'm gonna grow old, I'm gonna retire, I'm gonna live on all my money. And then? And then? When you catch what you've finally been chasing, will you truly be satisfied? Is the piercing question of what next been on your mind lately? In the darkness of the night, in those still moments, are the deeper questions of life. Are they being answered for you? And since it is true that God has created eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, our inner being will be restless until we find our rest in God. And the king is restless. He might not know the exact meaning of the dream, but he knows enough for it to deeply disturb him. The king is troubled. And when troubled, where do you turn? I mean, where do you look look to for answers to the deeper questions of life? Can the king's dream team provide a satisfactory answer for his troubled heart? Look at verse 4. Then the astrologers or the Chaldeans answer the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Now, as an important aside here, notice that the spokesmen for the group, they speak in Aramaic. And, and before it was Hebrew. And from this verse here to the end of Daniel uh, chapter 7, the language switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. And then in chapters 8 through 12, the language returns to, to Hebrew. Well, Why? Well, you can, you can check it out for yourself, but the best I can tell for the switch in language is in matters related to the wider populations of the, uh, of the Babylonian and Persian empires, especially when crisis strikes, when troubled. The king knew that dream interpretation was a no brainer. He could tell them his dream, and they could make up anything they wanted. So he says, I'm not going there. No, no, you tell me what it is I dreamt. And so he gives them a carrot and a stick. There's bad news, good news here. Look at verse 5. Here's the stick. Verse 5. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Tough guy. It's pretty straightforward stuff though, don't you think? That's the bad news. But the good news, the carrots in verse 6. But if you tell me the dream... And then you explain it, you receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Well, things get ugly in the palace because the king ain't happy. And so we come to clueless in the court. Clueless in the court. Verse uh, 7, look with me at verse 7. Once more, they, mean this dream team, these enchanters and such, they replied, let the king tell his servants a dream and we will interpret it. Now the king's blood is starting to boil. He accuses them of stalling in verse 8. In his paranoia and insecurity, he figures these advisors are plotting something evil against the king, it tells us in verse 9. But he gives them one other chance to tell him the dream that will prove they are the real deal, able to interpret it for him. So the spokesmen have the courage to be honest with Nebuchadnezzar, and they say in verse 10, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. These experts could not believe what the king was asking. No one could ever meet the king's request here. No one. No one had access to the supernatural, to divine truth. And so verse 11, they say, what the king asks is too difficult. This is impossible. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. They were clueless as to an answer, for this kind of matter belonged in the realm of the spiritual. They're saying only their gods that would know this. I'm reminded of William Phelps, who taught English literature at Yale for 41 years until his retirement in 1933. And grading an examination paper shortly before Christmas one year, the story is told that Phelps. I came across this note written on the top of the examination paper by one of his students. The note said, God only knows the answer to this question. Merry Christmas. He left it blank. Phelps returned the paper with this note. God gets an A, you get an F. Happy New Year. (laughs) She had a sense of humor. See, what these astrologers say here is right and wrong. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. That, that, there's some truth in what they're saying there. That's partially correct. You see, the questions that many people wrestle with of, 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 of who am I and where am I going and what is this life all about, it can only be explained in terms of the supernatural, the divine. This is, here's the plight of all people. The Nebuchadnezzar factor is all around us. It's it's likely even in this room, but it's also as we come across people uh, out in the world throughout the week. People are looking for answers to the ultimate questions of life. And human explanations don't cut it. There is the the God-man, Jesus, who provides the answers to all those questions, the ultimate questions, that is. And until you resolve that issue, you're gonna continue in restlessness. So, So I ask, can you put your head on the pillow at night and know that all is well with your soul? Where do you go with your questions? And are you finding a satisfactory answer? Or as the Moody Blues so aptly put it, why do we never get an answer when we're knocking at the door with a thousand million questions? That's exactly how King Nebuchadnezzar must have felt. Why can I not get an answer? Why? He couldn't even buy his way to an answer. Brute force and promised reward couldn't unlock an answer. Here's a man who's troubled by deep inner thoughts and questions and no one on the face of the earth had anything to offer him. Now, the king was not a stable man. He's unreasonable, he's demanding, and he definitely has anger issues. Look at verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon, all of them. He flies off the handle. He's about to go on a killing spree. It has been said, anger is a condition in which the tongue works faster than the mind. And the king's tongue is way ahead of his mind here. It's safe to say don't make decisions when angry. I read of a true story out of the Florida newspaper a few years back. The article said this, it's not uncommon for someone to exit in the middle of an argument. However, that gesture should probably be avoided while traveling on the interstate. (laughs) Marquita Armstrong was a passenger in a car driven by her boyfriend, Jeffrey Watson, when the two of them got into a heated argument while driving on the interstate. Marquita told her boyfriend that she wanted to get out, but he refused to pull over. And so while passing through a construction zone, Marquita opened the door and she jumped out. Now fortunately, uh, she only had serious injuries and didn't die. But she was taken to the hospital. And I was reminded of the proverb 1417 that says, A quick-tempered person does foolish things. It's true. And the king here, he takes out his anger on everyone around him. His problem is the problem of many, the problem of what only a few care to admit, that across America are dads and young people and bosses and athletes and celebrities and Christian leaders who have a similar angry outburst and don't even know why they're so angry. And people are in the wake of that as they just have these outbursts. But like the king, our irrational outbursts can be explained only one way. That in our heart of hearts, we realize we are not in control. That's what happens to the king. Point back to your last time you were angry. Wasn't that a lot of it? I'm not talking about righteous anger. I'm talking about the times we just want to flip out. How do you explain your angry outbursts, your irrational responses? Might it be that you are aware of so little control you really have. That is for me. And so before your actions become everyone else's nightmare, will you just slow down and and deal with some of the matters within? A lady once came to Billy Sunday. and The story is told that she tried to rationalize her angry outbursts. She said, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper. I blow up and then it's all over. And Billy son, they replied, yeah, so does a shotgun. And look at the damage it leaves behind. The <laughs> King's problem was about to be everybody's problem. It was going to be the advisor's problem. His disturbing, king's disturbing, forgotten, impossible dream was soon to become everyone else's nightmare, including Daniel and his three friends. And they even a part of this dream team that failed miserably, yet the king's wrath reaches them. He doesn't really care. And so we come to the third heading this more fearless in a crisis. Fearless in a crisis. Look at me at verse 13. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So you're going to go find Daniel and his three friends and they are going to execute him. I mean, that will ruin your day. I mean, you're talk about feeling helpless. The king's executioner, Ariok, goes looking for Daniel and his friends and and somehow they meet up and and the end of verse 13 tells us that Daniel spoke to him, the one who was coming to get him to go execute him, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tack. I figure it's a pretty good time for tack, don't you think? (laughs) But I'm impressed with Daniel's calmness amid a crisis. And whatever he's feeling on the inside, because we don't know, he comes across as fearless in the face of a crisis. And so I, I pause and I have to ask myself, how well do I hold up in a crisis? You know, it's gonna to be tough to make a difference if we're not able to handle crisis. Because life involves facing one crisis after another. I wish it weren't so, but it's true. And if we're going to be that bright spot in a dark world, it will mean we learn to have composure in a crisis. That's Daniel. Daniel questions here the harshness of the decree. And amazing enough here, to me anyway, is the king's executioner, Arioch. he takes the time to explain what's going on to Daniel. And Daniel then with courage, he speaks to the king. He asks for more time. And the king gives him more time. That's interesting to me because the king did not grant his dream team the time they so desperately need. He said, no, you're stalling, not giving you more time. Yet he gives it to Daniel. Do you suppose, I don't know, but do you suppose he saw something different in this man, Daniel? Do you suppose the king even admired and respected this composed man who was willing to face him in his angry condition? We can only suppose But whatever the king saw, and certainly God is in it, the king gives Daniel some time. See, there's something, I believe, about Daniel's character that impressed the king in sharp contrast to his charlatans. Now, what kind of person do you want around in the midst of a crisis? Uh, Probably someone who has a calming presence and can keep it together. But let's not forget, Daniel's life is on the line here. He was facing, right now he goes and faces a a raging madman about to slaughter all his wise men, Daniel included. But Daniel was prepared long before this crisis ever hit as to how he would respond. But he was composed, he had a calming influence. Daniel never panicked. How was it that Daniel was able to stay composed and calm in the midst of crisis and trouble? What was his secret? Look with me at verse 17. Daniel returned to his house, I imagine with a sense of urgency. He returned to his house, verse 17 tells, and explained the matter to his friends. Now look what comes next, verse 18. What does Daniel urge his friends to do? Follow along here, verse 18. Daniel goes to his friends, and he says, and Daniel urged them to come up with some plan to get out of this crisis. We've got to do something here, guys. What do we need to do? Give me some strategy. What's our plan? He doesn't do that. That's what I think I would have done. He doesn't do that. So often, that is our first instinct, right? One pastor and seminary professor wrote in a letter to his friend, Please pray for my habitual tendency to trust in myself and what I can do. What does Daniel do instead of relying on what he could do? Verse 18 tells us, Here, this is what it says, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. In other words, they prayed. Daniel, had this amazing confidence in his God. He believed that God could take this nightmare and do something good with it. And this really sets us up for next week. But suffice it to say for now, when troubled, Daniel turned to God. You see the contrast here of two men living in the same empire? When troubled, the king turned to what? Human answers. Turned to his experts. When troubled, Daniel took the matter to the Lord. You see, Daniel knew that to kneel before God in prayer meant that he could stand before any man. And I believe that's our takeaway this morning. Daniel knew that to kneel before God in prayer meant that he could stand before any man, any man situation. How about you? What impossible situation in your life right now do you just need to trust God with? Not just give lip service to it, but say, I need to trust God with this. What feels helpless, perhaps even nightmarish, that you have little to no control over right now? Will you trust God with it? Will you lean in heavily on God? Will you choose to believe for impossible things? Alan Rice is the pastor of a rural church in North Carolina. And Crossfire Church is not your typical church. It's composed of former motorcycle gang members and other roughneck bikers whose lives are just being transformed. Their website address is simply this, bikerchurch.com. I looked it up. It's really really there, bikerchurch.com. Well, the pastor was asked what was different about his church from the typical small rural church that you find in North Carolina where they were local, where they were located. And he said this. He said, for one thing, they haven't been church-blinded to the power of God. They have been church-blinded to the power of God. He went on to explain what he meant. He said that when someone has a prayer request, they really pray and they expect God to really answer. Come on, church. We've grown up in church, a lot of us. Are we church blinded to the power of God? We go, he can't do that. We won't say it out loud. I mean, has your confidence in God and what he can do taken a hit lately? Come on, let's be honest. Believe that to kneel before God in prayer means you can stand before anyone in any situation. Can you believe that? Will you walk in that this week? Let's pray. God, it's easier said than done for honest. You can walk out of here and, and say, yeah, that, that's where I am or that's where I want to be I'm going to trust God with this. I'm going to trust God to do the impossible. And then it's going to be tested to see if we really embrace that or not. It's not suggesting for a moment we put up all these kind of things out there and, and presume and test you to come through. It does mean that we, are, we, we try not to be so church-blinded to the power of God and become skeptical and cynical in our walk with you. God, may we trust and believe that for impossible things that are too difficult and impossible for mankind and secular world to answer is not impossible for you. May our trust be there, whatever situation it is, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.